Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Are food shortages a manufactured crisis? Are they a crisis at all? I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. Before we get to our diving board, though, I have to say thank you to anyone who came to the Libertarian Party convention in L.A., but I owe my apologies because I didn't get a chance to chat with anyone because right after I spoke, there was like, it was a political meeting with elections and stuff. So I kind of didn't understand how it was going to work, but I would love to, if you showed up for that, or even if you're just in LA, uh, I was really looking forward to chatting with people. So let's just do uh, a meetup. I, one person sent me a recommendation of a place in LA that's both a library and a bar. So... Uh, that seems like a, a must for a meetup with me. So if you are interested in that, especially if you came to that um, convention and we didn't get a chance to say hello, please email me at Show at gmail.com and we'll get something going. I really am I'm, I'm due. We're due for a meetup here in L.A. Also, if you're listening to this like immediately Wednesday morning, you could tune into me live with Robbie the Fire on his Run Your Mouth podcast, which is being live streamed on YouTube at 9 a.m. Pacific Wednesday, the 27th of July. Also, that's 12 noon Eastern. So you can, as long as it's after that time, you can either watch it live and join the chat or you can watch it later. But we're going to be talking about what this deep dive is about. So let's hit it. Our diving board today is sponsored by the World Economic Forum. Bleh. The Basically, all of the resources, if you try to look into food shortages or whatever, the food crisis, I think food security or food insecurity is a big one, basically all you get is top-down stuff. It's the World Economic Forum, it's the UN, it's the IMF, World Bank, there's Bill Gates stuff in there. That's where it's all coming from. Now, I'm not saying it's not true, but they're definitely promoting it. And I'll tell you what I think about that. So the headline is, G7 commits $5 billion to tackling global food insecurity. It's $5 billion. G7 isn't a person. G7 isn't a bank account. It is not a corporation. It is you. It is your tax dollars. So I'm going to, there's a few places here where I really want to read the words that they say. Uh, this one is the group of seven rich democracies. Nice. We, we have $30 trillion of debt. <laughs> we'll commit up to $5 billion to improve global food security, a senior U.S. official said, as the group responds to worries in developing nations about the threat of hunger triggered by war in Ukraine. Triggered by war in Ukraine. That's going to come up several times in this podcast. On the final day of the G7 summit in Germany, 
the official said that the United States would provide over half of that sum, which would go to efforts to fight hunger in 47 countries and to fund regional organizations. I remember I had an Ethiopian cab driver once or Uber driver who said to me, the famine or food crisis, whatever, back in the day when I was growing up, like I think it was in the 80s. I mean, I know I was growing up in the 80s, but uh, <laughs> I think that's when it was. He said it was totally overblown, and all they did was they took all this supposed aid and they gave it to people on the ground who would promote the politics or the parties or whatever that the U.S. wanted. So it was just a way to get money in there to control the politics. So when they say they're funding regional organizations, to me, that's what that means. It says about $2 billion of the commitment would go to direct humanitarian interventions with another $760 million going to, quote, food assistance to enhance the resilience and productivity of food systems around the world. Well, that's only $3 billion. Uh, it goes on to say, yeah, it's, so maybe that's, that's just the U.S. Ver- con- the, the U.S. contribution. And, you know, with this stuff, sometimes the U.S. is the only one who actually ponies up. So weirdly, though, since that article was published over the past couple of days, Turkey brokered a deal whereby Russia would now get the food and fertilizer going. So I'm going to tell you what the real story is there, but the cover story has been that Russia won't ship food or fertilizer out of the Black Sea port. I think that's where the problem is. Um, And Russia says, well, then just like take it by land out through Belarus. And they're like, no, we won't permit that. There's a lot of things they weren't permitting that was creating this problem, but it looks like they ironed it out. It says, so my question is, with all of, so now that the war in Ukraine is not the cause of the hunger crisis, is G7 going to say, oh, no, we don't need that $5 billion anymore? Not a chance in the world. <laughs> because not only is it not about Russia, it's not really about a food crisis. To me, all the reasons they give that there is a food crisis are, it's just like when I did that Perfect Storms deep dive recently. It's not about all those little things coming together and creating this crisis. These things that contribute to the crisis are all based on policy, bad policies, or aren't really true. You know, like the Ukraine thing, that those are U.S. policies and EU policies that created the food problem surrounding the Ukraine war. As a matter of fact, let me just skip to what Sergei Lavrov, one of my favorite guys, he's so funny. Um, Lavrov said at a news conference last month, quote, there is a problem with the export of Russian grain. Although the West loudly reminds everyone that grain is not subject to sanctions, for some reason, they are bashfully silent about the fact that ships carrying Russian grain are subject to sanctions. They are not accepted in European ports. They are not insured. And overall, all logistics and financial matters which are associated with the supply of grain to the world markets are under sanctions of our Western colleagues. So they get to say that it's the grain is not under sanctions, but they made it impossible to get the grain out. So what Turkey did was brokered a deal somehow to lift all those limitations on Russia's ability to get the grain out. So that's cool. 
<laughs> but yes, it's not going, they're not going to say there's no more problem. I'll tell you that much. So there's tons of talk about mass starvation, food insecurity, food prices spiking, all from the top. And I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm just saying it's all top down. And they can either speak things into existence or they're there for the fear porn of it. Or maybe they want people to hoard it so the prices spike. You know, maybe they want people to freak out. Because some of the problem here is that nations are hoarding fertilizer and food. Or I should just say, like, putting up trade barriers. Like that China's getting um, yelled at for no longer exporting urea phosphate because they want to keep their stores in case there are food problems. And that will create the crisis that they're they're saying they want to solve. They can also do psychological operations of a more, you know, on the ground type or false flags. They can do a lot of things to make this really happen. I don't think they it's beyond their capacity to make this really happen. But what I will say is, as I've done a lot of research on this, I can't find any real reason for this to be happening other than them manufacturing it, them manipulating policies to promote this, and uh, and so when that's the case, I have to look at it as, okay, so there isn't really a food crisis. So when they say we're doing all these things to address the food crisis, it's not because they think there's a food crisis and there isn't. They know there isn't. They, at some level, like the lackeys who write the plan, think that there's a food crisis and they're writing the plan according to the plan, which is they're coming out with the solutions that they know their bosses want to see. Their bosses don't necessarily think there's a food crisis. They're manufacturing a food crisis at some level or the, the expectation of one so that they can get these answers promoted by their little think tanks. So I look at it and say, okay, so then what are the answers that they're offering? That's the agenda. You can, and then you can go backwards, reverse engineer that and say, well, if that's the agenda, what's the real purpose of it? Like, what are they, if, the, if this, these are the agenda items they're trying to accomplish, what's it for? And, you know, usually it's for control or money or whatever. So I'm going to get into all of that right now. So what are the reasons that they're claiming it happens? Well, it's kind of interesting because this is the one where I wanted to read a lot of words. The World Economic Forum is trying to position it as organic and natural, like famine and food problems have always been with us. And this is the same thing with like the supply chain issues that I noticed. We have redundancies. We have efficiencies. We're way beyond it. I mean, look at U.S.-run commercial jet airlines, airplanes. They just don't go down. I hate to say it because I think that's probably going to start changing because they don't want them to not go down anymore, but they they don't go down because we've kind of nailed the ability to get things pretty perfect. Like we're rich enough to have redundancies and not take any chances. The richer you are, the less chances you want to take. So I like the supply chain thing. I just don't buy any of it. Like they, I'm, I, none of the excuses made sense to me. And, and so prior to that, they would say, or like for that case, they would do all these little tiny perfect storm things. Now it looks like they're just trying to say, hey, famine we still have with us, to the point where they're evoking biblical imagery. Check this out. It says, this is how this damn article started. It's awful. <laughs> I've got a lot of show notes. You can go through them at thepropreport.com if you want. It's difficult not to be downcast when you survey the global geopolitical scene in 2022. The four biblical horsemen of the apocalypse, war, famine, pestilence, and death, seem to hold the reins of our collective future. <laughs> but then the next line 
They did a little change up. This mix of famine, death, war, and climate change is displacing millions of people. (laughs) I just think that's funny because it was two seconds ago, it was war, famine, pestilence, and death, and now it's war, famine, death, and climate change. Meanwhile, why would they take out pestilence? Isn't like COVID-19 a pestilence? Isn't that like really one of the pillars of this problem? Oy vey. Anyway, so they say it's going to cause 100 million refugees around the world. I mean, that sounds like that sounds like nothing. <laughs> that sounds easy. That sounds like we've already got that. So then it goes on, see, and this is their thing where they want it to sound like uh, archetypal almost. Part of the answer is as old as civilization itself. Droughts, floods, conflict, and displacement have hurt harvests and weakened output. But a more intangible factor is no less important. Many of the networks on which farmers have traditionally depended to cope with these disasters have been lost or degraded. Now, that really makes me annoyed because I've been saying for years and years that the immigration problems that we have are, and you'll, you'll, you know, I said it because I always use the same term. I said they go in and spread, uh, terrorism and refugees like wildfire when they go in and break the rules of sovereignty, when they go in with their American exceptionalism and use military or political or economic intervention in other countries, they create these migratory crises that then we have to deal with on our doorstep. And they act like they're, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into that right now. But but one of the reasons I always thought they were doing that is that they really want to break up those local networks. So I said, these policies are creating this problem. And now they have this problem, and they're saying, they're not even saying there's any good reason for it. Well, I'll tell you, they actually do. They say, today, farmers' personal networks are weakening. Farms are being hit more frequently to by severe weather, and violent conflict is increasing in poverty-stricken regions. These and other variables are uprooting farmers everywhere. While people have always left their homes in search of safety or opportunity, a record number of people currently are on the move. So when they talk about these violent conflicts, what do you think that is? That's the U.S. blowing up the Middle East. That's the U.S. provoking Russia and Ukraine. I mean, it's... they. What the hell happened in Sri Lanka? <laughs> Vicky the Noodle. So... They create the policies that that cause this problem. And then they say that these things are impairing the social structures. And it says, if global hunger is to be eradicated, the underpinnings of rural resilience must be supported, expanded, and diversified. It says, people in rural areas have always relied on their personal networks for information to help them weather crises, improve productivity, and limit crop losses In return, these relationships have facilitated the exchange of information and goods, diversified diets, strengthened farming techniques, and guarded against hunger. So they listed all the things that these networks used to do but can't do anymore because of some crazy weird stuff. I don't know what, you know, whatever, bombs, I guess, from somewhere. And But here's the thing. So they listed out all the things that used to happen, but now they don't, and then they come in with the solution. The best way to address this is by investing in new technologies that enable farmers to connect with information and institutions that can decrease uncertainty and mitigate risk. Some of the most promising innovations in rural agriculture are technology and service-based. With access to data, markets, and financial services, farmers can plant, fertilize, harvest, and sell products more effectively. But this is how it starts. So, 
I'll get into like all the agendas that this stuff serves, but you can see what they're going for. They want a big, big thing in all of these agendas are getting technologies everywhere, using technology to track information, to track decisions, to track human beings. It all comes out in here. There are other reasons too, but this is definitely a big part of it. And and this is how it starts. This is how the internet started. Remember, the internet was about us getting information. Remember that? That's why we all got on it. And now we get totally curated, censored, um, manipulated information, and they get everything, everything about us. And that is what's happening here. Because these are poor people who really don't need that stuff. Okay. So then there are, in all the stuff I've read, it really boils down to, you know, some major themes about what's causing it. In the words of David Beasley of the World Food Program, he said it's man-made conflict and climate shocks. That's what he said. And let me just tell you, like, Samantha Power, I might have to do this in two parts with all the, all the, all the resources that I came up with, but Samantha Power was talking about food crises. She's some kind of ambassador or whatever. I think she's Cass Sunstein's wife. She's just like as deep state as you can be. She was giving a speech to the CFR. And she was saying that uh, the U.S. basically entirely funds the World Food Program, and it's run by this former senator, former Republican, or a Republican former senator, David Beasley. And it so annoyed me because it's spelled P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E, right? So it looks like it's some international organization or British or European. It's just that... You know, of all things, that just makes my blood boil because <laughs> we're paying for it. Anyway, so that's what he said. He's that he's that guy. But here are the other things. So climate, heat, floods, drought, that's all climate. Um, one of the quotes from, I feel like this was a World Economic Forum. Just look at the past 12 months. We've seen climate change induced unusual pe- weather everywhere. Severe flooding wiped out many crops and drowned millions of livestock in North America, while heat waves shriveled others. Eastern Australia received its year's worth of rain by the end of March. I mean, Stella was telling me about this. I could not get my mind around it. That is not believable that that's just the stuff is organic or from carbon dioxide. Washing away swaths of crops. India and Pakistan were scorched by their hottest April in 122 years, leaving most of its wheat crop as cinders and killing thousands. Africa has been battered by storms that have caused widespread death and destruction. So I just, I don't believe in man, I do believe in man-made climate change, but I think it's things they're doing on purpose. That's what they're doing. They're manipulating the weather in order for this stuff. And I personally think that they're doing it so that we can't be food independent, so that Without without all that crap, you could actually, you know, on your own little piece of land, you could, I mean, I just always think like chickens, eggs. I think you could probably live on eggs, (laughs) like alone. So, and it's just, and they just turn garbage into eggs. Anyway, there are other reasons that are cited. Inflation, supply chain issues, energy prices. Uh, One of the quotes was rampant worldwide inflation is putting added pressure on people being able to get basic foodstuffs while sky high fuel prices and broken chaotic supply chains make getting that food into people's mouths more expensive and problematic than ever. The inflation was a result of them printing an unbelievable amount of money for this COVID crap lockdown thing that they instituted. Supply chain, to the extent they didn't just run ships into the ground on purpose, that was also fallout of these awful lockdown policies, not of people being sick, not 
of people being sick. It's all the policies. And they're not going to deny that. They're going to say those policies were necessary, but crap. And energy prices, I think, and I did a deep dive on this, on gasoline prices, I think it's because of the climate initiatives that are making refineries go away. There were 300 refineries 40 years ago in this country. There's like 120 now. And over COVID, anything that was kind of winding down, they were like, we're just shutting it down. Nobody's using it. We're shutting it down. If we can't make it biodiesel or something, uh, forget it. So I blame them for all of that. And, And elsewhere, it says that they had this zero hunger goal in the UN sustainable development stuff. And that they were meant to achieve it by 2030, but they are going backwards. They're going backwards. They expect almost a billion people to be affected by hunger in 2030. And I'm thinking, the stuff that you make a goal somehow gets worse, not better. And this, this, this passage just infuriates me, absolutely infuriates me. The dramatic consequences of the COVID-19 crisis are exacerbating the suffering of the most vulnerable. This is from a Bill Gates thing series, C-E-R-E-S 2030. It's a UN thing, but Bill Gates was like front and center on this page. Uh, The most vulnerable, especially in the poorest regions of the world. For them, the COVID-19 pandemic is also a hunger pandemic. Uh, With this in mind, we're going to launch solutions and strategies for a better world. It just, that makes me want to cry. It, the pandemic wasn't, wasn't a crisis for them. I mean, they had like zero deaths in Africa, for example. So if they're hungry now because of these policies, that's just, if anyone dies of starvation, that is murder. Murder. The Ukraine issue, they said that fewer crops were planted there as well as the effective blockade of grain and fertilizer, as well as uh, hoarding by Russia, which the, the, we already talked about that. Okay. Other little things that were mentioned in some of the articles I read, uh, that countries have to pay debt service to China instead of buying food. You know, debt sucks, but a lot of what they're after here is about getting poor people on bank accounts, other conflicts in addition to just Ukraine. I didn't realize this, but that explosion in Beirut took out uh, their main grain silo. So that's like definitely in the category of perfect storm BS. Uh, A coming recession is going to make it worse. And then they didn't mention things like avian flu, swine flu. I think they're going to come through and kill animals because of that. I mean, they're just making it up. Like, I looked into that a little bit, too. From eagles to chickens, I I do not think it's the flu. I don't think it's like a microbe. Uh, And then also they don't mention, like, climate policies such as the nitrous oxide limitation in Denmark that created those, called those farmers to strike or that that those farmers were striking because of. So I could go through each one of those and call BS on them or point to a policy that created it, but they could continue to create policies, create little false flags to keep this stuff going. But what that David Beasley was saying was that we're, he was really fear-mongering like crazy, like things are going to really get awful and mass starvation, mass migration. You, you, were, you, don't, you hate immigrants, wait till they're starving. Refugees, he says, first there's going to be rising food prices. And then there's going to be civil unrest. And then we can 
I don't think he said we, but then we'll, what will happen will be that the leadership will change to where they can start thinking clearly about the solutions that we are offering. And if that doesn't work, then you will have problems with food availability. That's what I interpreted. I don't want to keep reading these people's words, but that's how I interpreted what he was saying. It's in the show notes. Uh, one of the things that was in an article was, uh, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but something like this could happen in Tunisia. So I'm just going to, what to watch out for Tunisia <laughs> because of that. Now I said a long time ago, people before Trump was elected, there was all this talk about civil unrest and, you know, civil war. There still is obviously. And at the time, I said, look, I don't think we're ever going to have real unrest without real hunger. And maybe you can get BLM protests going. I don't know if you could get them really widespread without real hunger. And I think they're willing to do that. And maybe just rising food prices is real hunger in poor countries. So all they really want, I think, is to swap out these this leadership in these countries so that they can embrace this ESG stuff, you know, and how could they actually, they, they're definitely pumping up prices and inflation. We've talked about that before. Can they really impart food insecurity? They do. I think they definitely control the weather and they've also gone in and disrupted traditional farming methods as well as getting GMO seeds that they're that the farmers aren't allowed to replant they actually have to pay for that so what they're doing is they're kind of making these farmers like just-in-time farmers or hands-to-mouth farmers who are really dependent more dependent and than ever on technology on these um non-heirloom seeds who knows what the fallout from that is on whether that is under somebody's control and at that point you can actually keep food from cropping up you know, cropping up, like food just crops up. I mean, obviously you have to take care of it, but I'm just saying like, look out your window, like stuff just grows. You can grow it unless there are these factors that they're, they've been implementing for a long time. And then that is kind of like getting diabetes or something. You've got to be on the grid then. You've got to be plugged in. If their information technology is it or the patents or whatever, they come and take all your seeds away from you because you didn't pay your patent that year. Maybe they give you a loan like they did like the Dust Bowl stuff. They gave the loans to the farmers. Then all of a sudden there was a Dust Bowl. I'm not saying they controlled that one, but then people, you know, the farmers went bankrupt. It's just predictable that there's going to be a weather crisis every once in a while. So if this is all manufactured, what is it that they're after? Yes, uh, they want total tech. That's what that 2010 Rockefeller Foundation document was all about. It was about tech being penetrating to the lowest levels of society, no matter what scenario of, of kind of world structure there was. World government, localized government, lots of information, no information. They just wanted to make sure that they could get tech everywhere. And why do I think they want tech everywhere? Total information awareness. They want to track all your decisions and they want to tra track every item. Every tomato is going to have a place on the blockchain, according to Ice Age Farmer and Allison McDowell. They also want the control. The control, not only because they want you to do what they want you to do, but they want to just be able to shut you off. They want a switch to shut you off if necessary. So... They also want, so that tech is one thing, upward dependence, not local networks, not community, not family, nothing. They want you plugged into the top. They want central control. It's like social security. Once you start taking the money and giving it back to them later, 
people don't need to live with their families anymore. Nobody wants that, the young or the old. And there's no point anyway. You can't even afford it. So they like that for central control, and that is why they go through that cultural disruption as a result of the political, military, economic intervention that leads to mass migration and stuff. It just it breaks up the the colony, you know, it breaks up the culture. And the main pillar of this dependency is what keeps cropping up in all of the recommendations from all these different sources is a safety net. The main pillar is to make sure there's a safety net in place. And they don't talk about having surplus and savings. They talk about a safety net. So it's never about a war chest. It's always about either welfare or loans. They want also to control what is planted. They call it sustainable. They call it resilient. They call it high tech. But it's really an anti-heritage thing. They, they want to move you away from independence. And another thing that David Beasley was talking about is like, I was amazed when one of my colleagues said, uh, we have to get, we have to give this food aid in the form of cash. And he said, you know how hard it's going to be to keep an eye on the cash and make sure it gets to the right person. And, you know, can't we just give them food like we used to do? And, and the, and he said, you know, it's amazing. Like we just, we have tens of millions of people now with digital IDs connected to their cash payouts. And that's through the world food program that we pay for. So it's very clear that's what that's for. And there's just been so much talk lately of banking the poor and microloans and getting cash and um, whether it's cash or crypto, it's probably not actual cash. It's probably crypto, but they mean like not food. They also talk a lot about trade. They want to make sure there's no barriers to trade and they want to make sure that they control how how the farmers, how that farm labor is trained, what they use for um, their technologies and their techniques. And they also emphasize in the involvement of the private sector. That comes up a lot. They, they actually seem to try to appeal to big business. And for me, I mean, it really goes back to something I read, I think in a JFK book by Prouty that just said, like at the beginning, once Magellan realized that the earth was a globe, <laughs> a sphere, don't tell the, don't tell William and Scott, but cause they hate ball earthers. But once the empires realized that it was a globe of S, you know, X size, they could get their mind around the size of the problem of total domination. And a lot of the wars were about just penetrating deep into jungles to like the, as if the idea is to monetize, turn into money, monetize every bit of labor, every good, every service, leisure, everything, everything, everything has to be monetized. And then all of the surplus just sucked up to the top. That's what it feels like to me. It's just, as I think of it as access and exploitation. They need access to, and that's what they use the war machine for. So when I see this, they want to control, make sure trade is open, make sure that it makes me go back to like, you know, maybe there aren't any lizards. Maybe it's just good old fashioned greed and empire building, but in, in the kind of um, Dutch East India company where it's the company that controls the government not the other way around. So uh, they also seem to be wanting to justify specific infrastructure spending, which of course taxpayers will pay for, but they talk over and over again about refrigeration, storage. I almost wonder if they want to build that stuff 
just to take you know keep keep all the actual goods and services under corporate control but get to access the subsidized storage. My guess is that refrigeration is like some really outsized portion, especially if there are really rising energy costs that corporations just want to want to defer. I mean, it's all, that's what infrastructure is all about in my opinion. Uh, the IMF put the goals very succinctly. They said, uh, avoiding further setbacks to achieving the sustainable development goals requires short and long-term actions in four key areas. One, providing immediate support to the vulnerable. I said that about the cash and all that implies. Providing immediate support to the vulnerable. That's what I was talking about, about getting safety net, getting cash, and all that that implies about IDs and tracking. And, I mean, you will get people to show up for their... Uh, biometrics or whatever you call it, if they think they're getting money. The second thing they said was facilitating trade and the international supply of food. That's what I'm saying. Remove trade restrictions, control everything, track everything, and just make sure that every person is both captive labor and a captive consumer. So they're kind of making these small farmers, if they take away any potential for surplus, they're really just laborers on their own little piece of land because you can't put it in a factory. Uh, boosting production. So they want, they emphasize that private sector investment and a lot of tech is going to boost production. And they, the fourth thing is investing in climate resilient agriculture, specifically climate smart tech, including unified standards, private investment, and refrigeration and banking, like really weirdly specific stuff here. So that's what they're after. And I've always thought like when people say who will build the roads, like that's a common argument to libertarians. Like you want to be a libertarian, but we need government for this. And my answer always was, do you really need roads? Are they a necessity or are there substitutes for roads? Because if there are substitutes for roads, they will emerge. Or if they're really necessary, you might just trod them out with your own feet like they used to do. But the bottom line is, what do you need? What are your necessities? Food, water, air, clothing, shelter. These are not monopolizable. These are not scarce. Everything except for those things has a substitute. Roads have substitutes. They have alternatives, or you can just build them competitively. And then the other argument was always like, what about monopolies? What if someone controls everything in one area? And I'm like, but it doesn't matter because unless they control food or water or air or clothing or housing, no monopoly matters at all. There's always a substitute for everything other than necessities. And now they're they're actually trying to monopolize and make scarce necessities, especially food. I feel like that's a really fundamental point. So uh, another thing that like really shocks me about how they approach the food crisis, the climate stuff, and I mean like through their chemtrails and weather manipulation, the COVID policies, is that their Great Reset is really resetting all the strides made not only by people of color, not only by women, but by developing countries. And I'm no social justice warrior. I'm just saying by their own, they're, they're actually creating the circumstances by which the people they say they're going to champion, the hungry, are proliferate, right? That's, it, it's a conflict of interest when you, it's like my old thing about government. It's a conflict of interest when you're offering security and in return, 
you know, you're getting tax money. If people feel secure, they're going to stop paying you. They have to feel insecure. Food insecurity is what these people are, are profiting from. And the global South, which is where most of these problems that they say they want to help are, are the ones who are affected by global warming. So if to the extent they're ginning this up, they're really targeting those people. I think they are targeting that people. I think it's pretty clear. So I also wanted to, I know that was kind of like just a laundry list of things. There's so much, like I had so many, so many notes of this. I won't get into it. Maybe I'll do a second one, but I do want to read some of the, this is probably a double episode as it is, but I do want to read some of the comments I got. Uh, A couple of my old standbys chimed in. I love that. And I really appreciate it when they do. Okay. So my first comment is from Terry. He says, I think the food crisis is real enough, but also manufactured. The globalists have spent many years setting up the complex, interlinked global food system while simultaneously making sure that each country in the web was not growing their own food and could therefore not be self-sufficient. So when the time came, that is now, they could put the whole system into crisis very easily. That's a good point. The odd, quote, accidental food plant fire here, a supply chain problem caused by a fake virus there, and a war provoked in an important food-producing region way over there, Russia and Ukraine, and the whole lot comes crashing down like a giant garden Jenga game. I think, quote, they are the culprits, as usual, the World Economic Forum, and the real powers behind the scenes, Rockefellers, Rothschilds, maybe, and the Great Reset with the panopticon of global control CBDCs, that's central bank digital currencies, 5G, and maybe full transhumanism and total control and full spectrum dominance is the ultimate goal. That's my two penneth anyway. Cheers. So always good, as UKJJ says, well said, Terry. They seem to have planned this to FAA competency and beyond. (laughs) So he's referring to the fact that I always say, the and I even said it in this show, which he did not hear when he made this comment, that the FAA, the airlines, they do get it right. Uh, it probably includes the completely unnecessary Ukraine conflict. Only time will tell if Russia is playing their part, part wittingly or were forced into action by the 5D chess players. They've even gone after the wild bird population with the recent headlines of cliff nesting birds killed by a virus. Oh my gosh, he hit the same. I also hit this. Were I did not read these comments before I did the show, and he did not hear the show before he wrote these comments. Were they victims of international attack or collateral damage from a poison leak or radiation? I don't know, but it certainly wasn't a virus. As an aside, and this is quite an aside, about six years ago, I was listening to an interview with someone who claimed to be uh, working on The Simpsons show who was tasked with doing Julian Assange for the 500th anniversary show. Knowing that Assange was stuck in an embassy, he expected to work remotely with him, but instead, at the appointed time, in walks Julian. I can't remember what podcast I was listening to, and my searches for it turned up empty, but I have a clear memory of hearing this. I accept that. This stuff gets 404. You got to just go with your memory if you're clear and confident. No explanation was given for how Assange was able to come and go, just amazed that it was possible. Hey, man, I've been saying that all along. You know what I think. I think He took his Jane Mansfield act on the road for a while. Byron says, random thoughts, manufactured crisis, a way to condition the population to get used to some degree of shortages without revolt. That could be one of the causes for this food thing. 
As I like to mention, the then most powerful empire on earth, Tsarist Russia, was summarily toppled when food and other aspects of daily life became an issue. He says, like so many other things in recent years, quote, doing without will be cast as a virtue by the powers that be, and the propaganda machine will work double time to reinforce that view. At some extreme, pointing out the failure of the government to provide food and or publicly complaining will be categorized as domestic terrorism. Yet again, the least resourced among us will bear the brunt. Yeah, that's so true. The rich, famous, and powerful will claim to be doing their part in rationing, but in reality will continue to live lavishly, as was the case with masking, behind closed doors. The end game is just more control and to condition the population to be even more dependent on the government, less they risk revolt. I wish I could take full credit for my random thoughts, but the reality is I just reread Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> wow, maybe we all should. It really could be important to, uh, you know, I think she was controlled opposition too, but that doesn't mean, I mean, I get more out of limited hangouts than they get out of me. Okay, here's something from Dean about, mostly about GMOs. He said, uh, best I can distill is governments are working in tandem with NGOs to use food as a weapon against foreign and domestic populations. For foreign populations, food is and has been used as a way to manage the populations of countries that are home to key resources, as evidenced by Kissinger's NSSM 200. Yes, that's a shocking document. Uh, food is also being used as a weapon domestically to test unproven technologies such as GMO crops. That's the why. The who would be Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford Foundations, Bayer, 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 Monsanto. I think it's really Bayer. Monsanto, Dow, and a couple of other chemical companies. The how would be regulatory capture. Like other government agencies, the FDA is captured by the entities that it should be regulating. Numerous members of Monsanto and other companies were placed at high levels of the FDA that allowed them oversight over the agency's agendas. Even when agency scientists dissented, GMO crops and other issues were pushed through to the benefit of the NGOs. Very interesting. Wow. Huh. That's like... Uh, I might have to like listen to this myself over again to get to fully absorb the comments. Very rich and interesting stuff. Thank you, people. So there is lots more, but I did want to give you my first pass on this issue. And uh, in you know, all right, this is a complete non sequitur. But I just came back from my mom's. As you, if you listen to every show in order, you will know that I was at my mom's for a while. And she's always got EWTN on. It's the Catholic station and has like news. So you think it's the news, but it's just, it's all Catholic news. And then every once in a while, I have a little documentary. So they have this documentary about John Paul II, Pope John, Saint Pope John Paul II or whatever. So he's a saint. He's been canonized. And I've read some sketchy stuff about him. I don't know. And then when I was reading the CIA Vatican stuff that you may have heard on the Buddy Dive on Monday, my last posting that he actually, I don't know if I got to this on that conversation, but people say like he was captured, he was a shill, whatever, but they tried to kill him. And the official story of it being like Bulgaria is not true. It was the CIA because he was starting to try to open lines of communication up with the Soviet Union to get Poland free in a less dramatic way, but a less um, you know violent way or something like that. And they didn't like that. He was just in that old 
school mold of like Ronald Reagan or JFK where they think they actually have power, even if they were cooperating. But, but when I was watching that documentary, I remembered when I was a little girl and I saw him and I remember crying when he got shot or was it Reagan? I cried, I, whatever. I was broken up by both of those events. And I can go back and like tear down all these people. I know you can find out things about Thomas Jefferson or Martin Luther King Jr. And a lot of people, you know, they have their private foibles or maybe, you know, maybe in this case, he isn't really genuine. Maybe Ronald Reagan, again, he did also get shot. You know, I don't know. But I do remember in those days, it was, we were so hopeful and happy and positive. And yes, maybe we didn't see things that were being put in place at the time, but there was real value in 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 the feeling. So when I was watching this thing, like John Paul II would go and speak to these crowds of young people. Like I think he had Yankee Stadium or something, and they were all these young people, like my daughter's age and teenagers and stuff, like cheering for him. It was like Ron Paul, like getting people to burn dollar bills. It was like crazy. And they were just, they just felt good about being good. They wanted to be good. He wasn't telling them to be bad. He was telling them to be good and they wanted to be good. And I, and I just, I just wanted to say like, there's real value in, in the positives that people are offering. And I'm not talking about limited hangouts or maybe I am, I don't know, but like there's just real value. And I think it's important to remember once in a while that maybe there was never a hero who wasn't human. So maybe heroes are a myth, but they really serve a valuable function. And I just, I just want to keep positive. I wonder if people will, will think I'm crazy. I, I really would like some comments on this. I don't know where to... I'm redoing the website so that you can write comments underneath there and we can interact that way. But you can email me, monicaperezshow at gmail.com. And if you're in LA and you want to have a meetup, me, email me at monicaperezshow at gmail.com. And uh, if you want to tweet at me, at monicaperezshow. Obviously, I'm Monica Perez. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it.